Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Uh, welcome to Zoe Community Church. Um, if you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and you're kind of coming at a interesting time in the church. It's not good or bad. Uh, but we're finishing up a series that we've been in for a long time, for over two years. So back in January of 2021, we started a series through the books of Samuel. So we did first Samuel. That took us a while. And then we started second Samuel. Now we're in second Samuel 23, second to last chapter, second to last passage. If you want to grab your Bible and turn there, second Samuel 23. At Zoe, we do our best to simply try to preach through the word. Uh, we preached through several books already, hopefully, Lord willing, many more. We preached through Ephesians when we started. We went through Ruth, went through Matthew. That took us two and a half years just by itself. Uh, we went through um, Habakkuk. That was kind of during like the pandemic time. We did Titus. A lot of people forgot that. Um, and then we did, a, uh, I think, yeah, that's it. And then we started, right? Uh, we did Malachi. I knew I was forgetting something. Uh, we did Malachi real quick. Uh, so we have a few books down, um, but there's 66 total, so it's going to take us a while. Hopefully I live to 140 so we can finish. Um, but Second Samuel 23, you're going to see uh, in a moment as we read it that this is one of those passages in the Bible where it's not immediately clear what we're supposed to get out of it. Uh, a lot of it is just a list of names, just a list of people. Um, but if you know me, this is one of my favorite kinds of passages to get into. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole thing, and I'm not going to read it again after, but I'm going to read the whole thing. We'll pray, and then we'll get into it, and you'll kind of see what I mean. Second Samuel 23, starting in verse 28, uh, verse 8, excuse me. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, Atakamanite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Verse 9. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lahi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it, and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Verse 18. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the three. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but... He did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, 
was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, uh, did, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Verse 24, Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah of Harad, Elika of Harad, Halez the Paltite, Ira the son of Akesh of Tekoa, Abiezar of Anathoth, Mabunai the Hushathite, Zalmon the Ahohite, Maharai of Nedophah, Heleb the son of Baana of Nedophah, Ittai the son of, excuse me, it's on the page, Ittai the son of Rabbi of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gaash, Abi Alban the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Bahurim, Eliaba the Shaalbanite, the sons of Jeshen, Jonathan, Shammah the Hararite, Ahiam the son of Sharar the Hararite, Eliphalet the son of Hashabai of Maakah, Eliam the son of Ahithophel the Gilanite, Hezro of Carmel, Paarai the Arbite, Igal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Naharai of Be'eroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, would you be our vision? God, we come to your holy word this afternoon, and we come to it with expectation God, God, knowing that your word is truth, that your word is a lamp unto our feet, that your word is a sure foundation for us to build our lives upon. God, we look to your word to know what to do, but even more so, we look to your word to know who you are, that we might worship you and follow you. So God, I pray that you would speak through your word. God, and there are times where we don't really know what your word is supposed to communicate to us. We see a list of names of people we don't know, God, but we know that every single word is inspired by you, that the scripture is your very breath, and that you've revealed yourself to us in it. So God, I pray that you would help us to be humble as we sit before your word. I pray that you would use it powerfully in our lives to transform us and ultimately to point us to Christ. God, I pray that this time would be about him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. What is the story behind your name? Like, are you named after somebody, maybe a relative or a famous person, something like that? Are there certain associations that your parents kind of wanted to connect with you by naming you something? What is the story behind your name? I uh, read a story recently. It was kind of in the news, I guess, but there was this... Uh, I guess he's 48 now, but it was in his 30s when it took place. But there's this now 48-year-old man who lives in Jacksonville, Florida. For much of his early life, he lived in obscurity. No one knew who he was. Uh, people mispronounced his name all the time. But then something changed as he reached a certain age. As he got older, someone younger than him, who had the exact same name as him, 
exploded into international superstardom. And all of a sudden, this guy's life totally changed, right? He was getting fan mail. People found his address. He was getting calls on his cell phone. So he changed his number and then someone found his new number and posted it online. So he was getting calls left and right. Facebook even banned him from the platform because they thought that he was using a fake name to kind of take attention away from this other person who had the same name. So as you can imagine, this was a terrible headache for him, still is, but there is one plus to this, and this is what he said. He said, the one good thing is that everyone he meets now knows how to correctly pronounce his name. They guess right. Before, what they would always say when they said his last name was Biber. But now they know that his actual last name is Bieber. And you might have guessed his first name is Justin. The other Justin Bieber. 48-year-old Florida man. Now, there are so many people who have this same issue. It's funny, if you look it up, there are people all over the place. They walk among us. There's a random doctor in Northern California. His name is Elon Musk. Imagine how he's feeling these days, especially with Twitter and all that. There's a guy named George Bush in Illinois. There's a student in Texas named Taylor Swift. There's a random tour guide named Barack Obama. What are the odds of that, that you would have the name Barack Obama and not be the Barack Obama? Now, some of you, right, you're familiar with the famous Shakespeare line uttered by the character Juliet in the play Romeo and Juliet. She said, what's in a name? You know this? What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. And the question is, the question she was asking was, do names even matter at all? Like, why does it matter? Romeo, Juliet, Montague, Capulet. They're just words. Wouldn't you be the same person if you had a different label, if you had a different name? But the truth is, especially when you think about people like the other Justin Bieber, no, they they do matter. You can't just say that things would be the same if you had a different name. Your name does determine your experience of life, whether or not you get made fun of because of your name, whether or not you were trying to live up to kind of the status of your name, whether or not you shared your name with a bunch of other people your age. Maybe you have a nickname just because there were like four Johns in your class. You were defined in some way by your name. And there are associations with names. I mean, if you think about the people who share their name with the famous and the infamous, they walk around carrying around the stigma, for for better or for worse, of the famous people that they're connected with. What's in a name? Potentially a lot. Now, the reason we're talking about names is because, look at verse 8. Consider our passage. Verse 8 says, these are the names of the mighty men. Verse 18, skip down. And he wielded his spear against 300 and killed them and won a name besides the three. Verse 22, these things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. And then from verses 24 to 39, it's an entire list of just names. And then on top of this, there's one name that stands out above all the rest. Again, look at verse 8. These are the mighty men whom David had. Verse 9, he was with David. Verse 13, came about harvest time to David at the cave. Verse 14, David was. Verse 15, David said. Verse 16, brought it to David. You get the picture. 
The name David is plastered all over this passage. The emphasis in our text today is on the name of David, which in Hebrew means beloved or favorite. And I mentioned that probably a year ago. David is beloved, especially of God. He's like God's favorite. Now, okay, we're at the end of this book. We're at the end of this series that's taken a long time. I know not everyone was here for the whole thing, so let's just recap a little bit. This last section of 2 Samuel, these four chapters, 21 through 24, they're basically a summary of David's kingship. So the book started with Samuel, it's named after Samuel, and then he anointed Saul, who was the first king, and Saul fails. David becomes the new king, and that's basically how the story goes. It's Samuel, Saul, and then David. And now we're kind of done with David's kingship. This is not the chronological end of the story. We're just looking at kind of this evaluation of how things have gone. And these final passages, we broke it down into six parts, uh, poems, lists, historical events, they were specifically chosen, right? they were given to us in the word of God to give uh, all the readers, us included, a complete picture of David's reign and how we should think about it, how it should be processed, the good and the bad. Now today we're in the second to last passage, okay? So after this, we're done, okay? Well, next week, and then we're done. And the focus on this penultimate passage is on the name of David, Okay, sometimes he's called the king, sometimes he's called other things. Here, the emphasis is on David, the name, and what we should think of, what associations we should have with that name. What other names are connected to it, what character traits, what associations, again, the good and the bad. And there's something really important here to think about, not just historically or theoretically, but practically, because in looking at David this way, we're also forced to look in the mirror. I mean, as we think about the name of David, and we will focus on him, there's a reflection. The word of God is a mirror. We should see ourselves. What kind of associations are there with your name? And not just because someone else has the same name as you, but because of you. What's connected to your name? Let's get into it. First, the strength. The strength. There are three associations that we're going to see in our text. First, though, it's a positive one, the strength, which is about the heights of David's kingdom. Now, this first section has to do with three of David's mighty men, Josheb, Bashabeth. We'll just call him JB, not Justin Bieber, but JB, Josheb, Bashabeth, Eleazar, and Shammah. Okay, the three mighty men. Now, the Hebrew word for mighty men is gibberim, and it literally just means the mighty ones. These are guys who are called by what they're characterized by, which is might, which is strength. They are the elite warriors of David's army. JB killed 800 enemies at once. And some say that's Hollywood, that's impossible. But one, crazier things have happened right in the Bible for sure. And then two, when it says at once, it means during one like campaign. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily mean all in like a 15 minute span. But understand what this is saying, that this guy is worth 800 warriors in battle. And then there's Eleazar, the son of Dodo. He stood with David against the Philistines, and he fought until his hand was literally so cramped that he couldn't take his hand off of his sword. But through his efforts, the Israelites won a great victory over their arch enemies, the Philistines. And then we have Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. His claim to fame was this great lentil battle. The Philistines had gathered at Lahi, 
and Lahi was a significant place. It's where Israel's champion, Samson, had had some run-ins with the Philistines in the past. So Shammah is almost seen as a new Samson, the kind of guy who takes his stand in Israel and defeats the Philistines, driving them back. These are the three. So what do you think? What do you think? Some of you probably get a little pumped up with this kind of stuff. I know a few guys who like love this passage because they fancy themselves as mighty men themselves. Like back in my prime, throw me in there would have been the four, right? Jesse sent a stand would have been in that list. But I'm guessing most of us probably aren't feeling that way, right? And most of you probably are not at the level of Jesse Son of Stan. It's okay. Um, most of us probably aren't feeling that way. And, you know, we read this, we say it's cool, right? Pretty awesome. But it seems so distant from our lives. It almost seems unrealistic, like we're reading mythology or something. Even if we understand that it's history, that this really happened, the Philistines are long gone, warfare is fought in a completely different way now, and our problems are generally pretty different. So why are these men and their might immortalized for us in Holy Scripture, which is supposedly useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness? Second Sam, uh, Second Timothy 3.16. Like, what is this about, and how does it apply to believers for all time. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel 8. We have to go on a little journey here. 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is the passage where everything changed, okay, in this book. Israel had been a nation without a king, a kingdom without a king. The Lord, their God, was supposed to be their king, but they wanted a king, quote-unquote, like all the other nations. And even though the prophet Samuel warned them of all the downsides of having a human king, and there were many, they insisted, we want a king. And God said, all right, fine. Okay, look at verse 19. Verse 19, 1 Samuel 8, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Now notice the reasons why they wanted a king. To quote-unquote judge us and... Go out before us and fight our battles. In a nutshell, what they want is justice at home, and they want victory abroad. And every nation wants that, right? Every people wants that in general. No one wants out-of-control crime. No one wants lawlessness and corruption at home. No one wants to be defeated by enemies, invaded, taken over, and oppressed. I mean, this is what Israel wants. It's a common want. It's what every country wants. But the problem is... Israel, above every single nation, should have known that only God can ultimately give those things. They already had it. God already was their king. God is the one who can give complete and true justice and victory. And in wanting a human king instead of God, the people are demonstrating their profound lack of understanding when it comes to this. But all hope is not lost. Okay? Even though they choose this king... If the king is good, if the king himself is righteous and he trusts in the Lord for victory, then things will go well. In fact, turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, fifth book of the Bible. We've been here before, but it's important to read this. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. 
This was way before first Samuel. This is when Moses was about to, uh, I guess he wasn't going to lead them, but it was right before the people of Israel went into the promised land. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. See, it's not that God never wanted them to have a king at all. There was a provision for a king in the law. This is what it says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king uh over you whom the Lord your God will choose one from uh, from among your brothers you shall set as king over you you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you you shall never return that way again and he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold you could stop there there are three basic things that a king shouldn't do i mean obviously there's a lot of other things you shouldn't do but there are three things that god singled out one don't get too many horses two don't get too many wives and three don't get too much money don't focus on silver and gold now why do you think God said this. What, what's the reason for these three things specifically? Well, it's right there in verse 17. Lest his heart turn away. Not just for the wise, but really as a summary for everything. Don't go looking for horses. Why? Because what does that represent? Military might. Don't try to be self-sufficient. Don't try to be strong without God. Don't try to bypass him. Don't compromise by going back to Egypt looking for worldly strength. Don't try to get rich and trust in money as your security and for your happiness. These warnings are to make sure that the king focuses on what God wants him to focus on, which is his own righteousness and the righteousness of the people, and that he trusts in the Lord for victory. Okay, that's what it was supposed to be about. Now back to 2 Samuel, but we'll go to chapter 22. And I know we already taught on this. Pastor Kenny taught on it, 2 Samuel 22, but I want to point out something about David. Look at 2 Samuel 22, starting in verse 2. Look at how David views this whole thing. This whole thing about being king, all of that, the responsibility. Verse 2, chapter 22, he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Look, I mean, if you've been with us in all of Second Samuel, you know David is not a perfect man by any means. But what Second Samuel wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that he trusted in God for victory. When the battle was on the line, David always looked up to his Lord and Savior with Goliath, with Saul for all those years, and not just one-on-one, mind you. This was the backbone of Israel's military might during David's reign. The Philistines never defeated them when David was king. Do you want to know why? It's because David trusted in God for victory. Now, you can flip a page to go back to our passage, 2 Samuel 23. Notice verse 10. This is Eleazar. 
2 Samuel 23.10, he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword and noticed the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Then verse 12 was Shammah, one of the two of the three. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. Where is the emphasis when it comes to the mighty men? Where does their might come from? Who is really behind these great deeds of salvation and victory? It is none other than the Lord. And not even just the generic God, G-O-D. Okay, here it's the Lord in all caps. In Hebrew, it's the Tetragrammaton. Do you know what that is? The four letters that make up God's personal covenantal name. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. The name of God. Yahweh is behind every single one of these victories. And this is the lesson. Okay, the first lesson of this passage anyway. True strength, true victory, It only ever comes from God. As David said, when he was just a young man facing off against Goliath, and he had not a lot of experience, he didn't have a sword, he had a slingshot and five smooth stones, he said, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is Yahweh's. And it's those who trust in him that cannot ever truly be defeated. This is the strength of David. This is why his kingdom is so strong. It's not because of muscles. It's not because of uh, a sound or strong military mind, though David had both. It was the measure of his trust in his God. Look, you know, I'm sure you have some heroes of the faith, people that you look up to, people who have done great things in the world or for God. Um, One of the people that I look up to, and I I share about her every once in a while, is Corey Ten Boom. You know who she is. I don't talk about her too often because I'd rather not cry every week. Um, But if you don't know who she is, she was a Dutch Christian who during World War II, uh, she and her family, they they hid uh, Jewish people from the Nazis um, during the Holocaust. Eventually, she was arrested by the Gestapo. Uh, In 1944, toward the end of the war, she and her sister were sent to a camp. Her sister died, but the war ended before Corey uh, was killed. Afterwards, she wrote about her experiences, shared her story, and through her testimony and through her faithfulness, so many people across the world have come to faith. Uh, The courage, the selflessness, the impact of Corey Ten Boom, even the fact that she would be willing to, to step out and do those things. She's one in a million. But do you know what she said one time? I love this quote. She said, it is not my ability, but my response to God's ability that counts. Do you hear that? Not my ability. I'm nobody. It's my response to God's ability that counts. Where is the battle right now? Think about that. Where is the battle right now? If you watch TV, if you're on the internet, if you've used the World Wide Web, as we call it, in tech circles, then you know that there are a lot of battles being fought all the time. It's why we're stressed when we watch the news. It's stressful for me as well. It's why we made the decisions we made regarding our kids and their screen time and their education and all these things. Maybe it's why you moved to Texas. I meet a lot of people who are trying to escape certain things or trying to get away or, or just trying to get to a place where they feel like they can breathe a little bit. I mean, we're aware of the agendas against the morality taught in God's word. 
We're aware of the people who hate God openly, people who, who hate Christians openly. We're more than aware of the people who think, at the very least, that Christians are backwards or idiots or even dangerous to society. And we're worried about what this is going to end up, where it's going to end up, what it's going to lead to. Some of us feel that pressure, right? Even at work or in school or wherever we feel like the water around us is heating up to a boil. Here's the word for us. I'm not saying that the battle doesn't exist. I'm not saying put your head in the sand. But what I am saying is the battle is the Lord's. If there's one thing you learn from David's strength and his victory, you got to understand that it's not in David. It's in God. And this means that we seek to trust in other things, our own might, our own ingenuity, worrying more about worldly strategy than our own righteousness and our own trust in God. We'll have no guarantee of God's help. God is more than willing, if you read the Bible, to let people who don't trust in him lose. He lets people go and ruin their own lives, left to their own devices. He tells the people who want Saul, go ahead, have him. But for those who trust in him, those who lean heavily upon him, they can't be beat. So here's an important lesson that we must internalize, especially as things get harder, I think, for Christians. I think as things get more difficult in America, as the veneer of kind of a Christian society starts to fade away, Where is our trust going to be? It has to be in the Lord, or else we have no guarantee of victory. This is a huge danger for the church right now, leaning more and more upon politics or human leaders and giving lip service to prayer, adopting an ends justify the means manner of living, compromising personal integrity, returning evil for evil, saying, well, they're going to talk to us like this. They're going to fight this way. We need to do the same thing. It must not be so. Again, I'm not saying give up. I'm not saying don't vote or anything like that. I'm not saying don't try to make a difference. I'm not saying don't speak up. But what I am saying is that it was never by their own strength that the mighty men won any of these battles. So if we're going to fight, it has to be by God's strength. God is looking for those who trust in him with all their hearts. The strongest of us are weak. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. You got to understand that. God is looking for those who trust in him with all their hearts. Now, we need to move. Okay, so notice one more thing. Before we move to the next point, notice verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom who had? David had. Not Israel. They did fight for Israel, don't get me wrong, but specifically, they were David's mighty men. And this leads to the second point, the sacrifice. So the strength, right? David's name is associated with strength and victory, but understand it's because of God. Second, the sacrifice, which is about the heart of David. What inspired the kind of loyalty that David inspired? Why was he so beloved by people? It's the same thing it always was from the beginning. It's his heart. It's his heart. First Samuel 16, 7, when David was anointed king to take over from Saul. But the Lord said to Samuel the prophet, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. He's talking about his brother who is taller and better looking. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And he looked on David's heart and he chose David, the youngest, to be king. See, we read here in the second section in 2 Samuel 23, 
a story specifically of the mighty men. One of the craziest things they ever did. We don't know exactly when it took place, but we know that it was in a conflict with the Philistines again. And the Philistines had actually, at this point, broken into Israelite territory. They had taken over Bethlehem. They had occupied Beth. This is David's hometown, okay, Bethlehem. And David, he's camped with his army in a cave. Verse 15, pick up here. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then... The three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew out water of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. Okay, his wish was their command. And these three mighty men, what they did was they went all the way to Bethlehem. They fought through enemy lines just to get some water. You can picture it. There are soldiers trying to kill them. They're all fighting them off. Then they have to go to the well and they have to like pull the water up with the bucket or whatever. And the other two guys are like fighting while the one guy's pulling it up. Then they have this like cup of water and it's all like splashing around and they're trying to like walk with it and they're fighting and they escape and they get back to David and they bring this water to him just because he wants it. And here's what's even crazier. Okay. We, we don't know the geography as well, but he's in the cave of what? If you look at the text, the cave of Adulam. The water's in Bethlehem. If you look on a map, if you go on like an ancient Bible map or whatever, you'll see that Adulam, this cave, and Bethlehem are 13 miles apart as the crow flies. So it's probably even longer if you're taking like a path. So they're walking 13 miles to get there. They're fighting, getting the water. They're fighting guys with the water. Then they're walking 13 miles back. Better not trip or else it's not worth it at all. They bring it back. I mean, David probably thought there was no way. Anyone would take this literally, right? It's 13 miles away. No one's going to do that. The mighty men did it just because David said it. Now, this would have been an insane feat of sheer physical ability if it was a wartime necessity. If they had broken in to get something super important, the Ark of the Covenant or something like that. But David just wanted a drink of water from his hometown. That's it. It was more nostalgia than dehydration, much less a military need. This speaks to their incredible extraordinary loyalty to David, their love for him, as much as it does their ability as warriors. Now, let me ask, just so you think about it, have you ever risked your life for somebody? Have you ever put your life on the line for someone else? It's not common, right? It's not common. In fact, the Bible makes this point, Romans 5, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Maybe if you're a really good person, someone might dare to die for you if you needed it. Maybe you'd risk your life for the best of us. But most of it, this is not a common thing. And most people probably don't warrant that kind of sacrifice or devotion. I remember reading a story years ago, though, about a little kid, a little boy, uh, and his sister was sick and she needed a blood transfusion. And he had the same blood type. And because they were relatives, uh, the doctors and the parents felt like he was the best candidate. Um, but they were a little worried he was young. So they, they wanted to explain to him kind of the process. So they sat him down and they said, look, right, I think his name was like Little Johnny or something. Little Johnny, right, your sister is very sick and she needs some of your blood. Okay, so they explained like the needle and they explained the procedure. And they said, it's going to hurt a little bit. Um, but they said, but she really needs it. So would you be willing to be brave and donate your blood to her? And of course, he's kind of freaked out. He's kind of scared. He's not sure, but he says, okay, you know, I will do it for my sister. So they wheel him into the room, right? It's just a normal medical room. 
And the nurse puts the IV line into his arm, and you can see kind of the blood coming up uh, through the plastic tube. And then the kid, he leans back into the bed, and he closes his eyes, and he says, Doctor, how long before I die? And the doctors and nurses are like, oh my gosh. They, he thought he was going to have to give up all his blood. That's why he hesitated. He thought that he was going to die for his sister, but he was willing to do it. He had misunderstood, thought he was going to have to trade his life for hers, and yet he was willing to do it. That's love. And that's the thing. These three mighty men go far beyond mere duty here. They love David. Why else would you risk your life for something as small as a cup of water? David isn't just some king to them. He's their king, and he is their brother. Now, this would be a powerful story in of itself, but this isn't even the craziest part of the story. It's how David responds. Remember, this is all about David, how we should view David. There are a lot of ways David might react to this. Right? I mean, just think about it. We already read the text, but just think about how he might react realistically. He might be shocked, surprised. Like, I didn't even know you guys went. We were worried about you guys. He might be angry even. Why are you guys risking your life? What are you guys doing? It's too dangerous. At the very least, you'd expect him to be very grateful. Right? He'd drink the water and have some like good action hero one-liner. Like, that's some good water. Whatever you might say. Maybe he'd insist that they all share it. No, please, you guys got to drink some of this water. It's for all of us. But look at verse 16. But he would not drink of it. He drinks none of it. And then he poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. So they, they were gone all day. They're walking 13 miles one way and back. They're fighting for their lives. They bring the water back. And David just looks at it and he dumps it on the ground. Why does he do this? Leviticus 17. Turn with me to Leviticus 17. I know we're turning a lot, but uh, hopefully it's good for you. Leviticus 17. David says, shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? What does this mean? Why does he say this? Leviticus 17 has our answer. Look at Leviticus 17 verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For, pay attention here, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The reason it wasn't kosher, okay, understand, Literally, to eat blood was because of what blood signified in the sacrificial system. The blood was representative of the entire life of an, in, uh, of an individual, animal or human. The life of the flesh, it says, is in the blood. And therefore, blood is the thing that can make atonement. So David understands this connection. He isn't talking about sacrifices here literally, but this is in mind metaphorically for him. He's like, why would you sacrifice yourself for me? I'm not worthy to drink of your life. I'm not worthy of your life. I can't drink this water. I'm not worthy of you. See, in pouring the water out, he wasn't dishonoring these men and their sacrifice. He wasn't wasting it. In pouring it out, he was honoring them even more. He was saying that his wants, even his own life, were not worth their sacrifice. And this is the story. I think this is the story, actually, that explains 
David's superpower. And I've used this terminology before, that's why I say it. But I've said, and we mentioned throughout this series, that David's superpower is not his strength, though he is strong. It's not like his ability to play the harp, though he's really good. His superpower is that he is really popular. People are drawn to him. They like him. His, his name is an apt name for him, beloved. He's a beloved person. But why is he so beloved? Why are people so loyal to him? Why do people like him? Why are they drawn to David so much? It's because he's the kind of person who loves. He's the kind of person who is loyal to these men for sure and also to the Lord. He's a man of principle and he thinks about what's right here in the eyes of God beyond his own desires, beyond his own wants, beyond his own longings. The law of the Lord is on his heart and that's what makes him so great. He does the one thing that summarizes the entire law. He loves his neighbors. He loves his brothers. He loves these people around him as he loves himself. He says, don't, don't serve me this way. Don't sacrifice yourself for me this way. I'm not better than you. I don't deserve it. You're better than me. And this is David's true greatness. Do we understand this? It's so simple. It's that he seeks to be faithful to the heart of the law. He's faithful to God in that way. He's faithful to his fellow brothers in Israel that way. He loves his neighbor as himself. It's why the name David is associated with a heart after God's own. What's in your heart? Just think about it for yourself. What's in your heart? Is it filled with love and loyalty and the fear of God? Is it filled with bitterness and dissatisfaction and the fear of man? For a lot of us, it's a mixture of both. That is both. But there's a principle here to understand. And we see it in David's life. Reap and you will sow. Proverbs 11.25, it says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. It's not karma, okay? It's not a rule that you can try to uh, manipulate, or it's not a loophole that you could try to exploit. It's just a principle of how things work. If you love others, if you sow love, then you will reap it. You know, some of us, we've always been looking for love. I mean, that's a common thing in church. I don't know how many people I've talked to who are lonely in some way, who feel like they don't have any friends, that no one cares about them. But the one thing that they haven't tried is just letting go of that and looking to love. See what I'm saying? Some of us have always been looking for that true friend, but the one thing we haven't tried is just being a true friend to others. Everybody. It's not karma again. It's not like everyone will love you exactly as you love. This is not a formula to exploit again. But what we see in David is that it does happen. Saul hated him, no matter how much he loved him. But look at all these people that were willing to follow him, even give up their life for a cup of water. Because David was that kind of leader and that kind of man. I would encourage you to sow bountifully. Not for me, but for you. I want to encourage you to sow love and loyalty, to sow faithfulness, and watch what God will bring to fruition. Stop waiting. Start giving. And see what God does. Last point, quickly now, the scandal. So we saw the strength and we saw the sacrifice, and this is a pretty positive view of David. And overall, I think the scriptures would get David 
a pretty positive grade as a king. I think if you read First and Second Kings, not a single king lives up to David. So David's about as good as it gets. He's not perfect. We see that here, the scandal, which is about the failings of David. If you thought the gist of the sermon was going to be, at the end of it all, be like David, we have another thing coming. At the end of this passage, we have two more profiles of mighty men, and then we have a list. First, let's look at these profiles. We have Abishai, Joab's brother. We've seen him a lot. He's David's nephew. He's a David loyalist. He wanted to kill Shimei. You remember that? Shimei was the guy who was talking all that trash, cursing them. Abishai killed 300 men, won a name for himself. And yet, what does it say? He did not attain to the three. And then there's Benaiah, verses 20 through 23. He did great deeds, quote unquote. He killed two Ariels of Moab. Do you see that in your text? Verse 20. And some people ask, what are Ariels? And we're not exactly sure. Okay, the Hebrew is very difficult to translate. Uh, most likely it means some sort of lion, but we're not sure if it's metaphorical, like it was a warrior like a lion, or it was a literal lion. Either way, it kind of doesn't matter because it says right after that he actually killed a lion and a great warrior, an Egyptian. And not just an ugly Egyptian, but a handsome one. Why is that important? Not sure, but we can ask God in heaven. Um, he also won a name for himself and yet did not attain to the three. Notice this emphasis. These are guys trying to win a name for themselves. And yet these two guys, for all they've done, for all their efforts, for all their victories, still fell short. See, there's a sense in which we can give our best effort. We can do amazing things, and yet we can still fall short. And this prepares us for the list. Just a boring list of names, right? It's a list of the 30. But there are interesting things in this text if you take the time to break it down. Okay, so for example, it's not exactly 30, for one. It's not an error, but it's a list of people who were part of this rank. So originally, probably, it was 30 people, but some people got killed off. They added new people. These are the 37 guys who were in it at one point or another. Okay, so that makes sense. But the names are interesting, too. I won't read them again, but if you pay attention to where they're from, you'll see that most of them are from Judah. Okay, so if you look at kind of like where they're from, city-wise and stuff, most are from Judah, David's tribe, which makes sense. He's a guy who has a lot of loyalty in his hometown. However, an entire 12, a dozen, are not from Judah. Two are from Ephraim, which is a completely different tribe. Two are from Manasseh. And then three, this is crazy, are from Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe. David has not only brought unity to all of Israel by uh, drawing warriors from all over Israel to himself, but he's also won over his enemies. And then, on top of that, Even more surprising, three are not Israelites at all. If you look at the end of the list, you have Egal, son of Nathan from Zobah, verse 36, Zelek, the Ammonite, verse 37, and then Uriah, the Hittite, verse 39. They aren't Israelites at all. Now, back in Exodus 19, we won't turn there. We don't have a lot of time. But God told Israel through Moses that they were to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom. Now, they didn't have a kingdom or a king yet, but they were still this kingdom of priests. Now, what do priests do? They are go-betweens. They are intercessors, right? They're the people who stand in between you and God or between heaven and earth. They're the ones who offer the sacrifice on your behalf. They pray for you, etc. So Israel was supposed to be a priestly country. 
get priestly kingdom. They were to show the world who the true God was by living for him and, and holding fast to his word and all that. And they were to, to show, uh, and they were to honor God and hopefully bring the nations back to worship him. If you read the Psalms, there are so many Psalms about how the nations need to come and worship and bow down before the king of kings. Now, the problem was humanity had sinned. They become God's enemies were separated from him. They were in need of reconciliation. Israel was supposed to kind of stand in the gap, but then Israel kept sinning and they were enemies of God and how they live from their hearts and they needed a reconciliation too. But what we see here with David is that something has been going right. You see that? There are people who aren't of Israel, who aren't of Abraham's line, and yet they have been drawn to God's king. Now, this is builds on what we've seen already, right? The strength of David, the sacrifice of David, the heart of David. There's something in David in leading the people. It shows what a good king can do. You can see Israel finally firing on all cylinders, to a certain extent at least, bringing people into the fold, bringing people back to God. Okay, so the list does show in a lot of ways the greatness of David, loving enemies, winning people over, bringing even the nations to God, except... The very end of the passage ends with one name that will always and forever be associated with the name David. You see it? I read it already. Uriah the Hittite. The list in the passage preaches such a powerful testimony to David's greatness as king, his faithfulness, but it ends with a reminder of the worst scandal and worst sin of his life. And this is how the passage ends. This is the last thought that we're given. David did so much good. He tried his best. And yet as a sinner, he fell short as all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve do. Uriah the Hittite. This is the final association we're left with. Forever the name David will be linked with Uriah and Bathsheba. And it's only here. I mentioned it before, but if you're just reading the text, it's only here that we actually find out who Uriah was. We know Uriah was like a good soldier. We know that he served in the army, et cetera, et cetera. But it's only here that we really grasp just how close David was with Uriah, how loyal Uriah was to David. I mean, the mighty men were so loyal to David that they were willing to risk their lives just to get him a cup of water. That's the kind of person that Uriah was. They loved him too because he loved them. And yet it was one of these men, one of the elite, one of the mighty men, one of the gibberim whom he betrayed. He saw his wife and he slept with her. He got her pregnant and tried to cover it up. He summoned Uriah to the palace and dishonestly acted like he cared about his well-being while he was trying to figure out how to cover it up. David accomplished so much salvation from Israel's enemies. He had been so faithful. He, he led the kingdom with righteousness into so much victory. And yet at this one point, what did he do? He killed off one of the mighty men. He betrayed him. I mean, are there, are there any people in your life? Let's just put it this way. Are there any people in your life when they hear your name, they cringe, their heart sinks. Maybe they get angry when they hear your name. And not because you have the same name as someone else, not because your name is Justin Bieber, but because of you, because of what you've done, because of who you've been in the past because of the scandals or sins that you have been involved in? Are there any people out there who have a visibly visceral bad reaction when they just hear your name because of you? I know there are for me. 
there are for all of us. And what we see here as we start to land this plane of Second Samuel is there are even for David too. All have sinned and fallen short. So where does that leave us as we start to close this? Is there anyone out there like David? Is there someone maybe who has the strength to save and yet has who has a heart to sacrifice himself for his friends? Is there someone with the ability to win over his enemies, even to bring sinners to God? Is there someone like this yet without the stain of scandal and sin? Last passage, Matthew chapter 1. We'll go to the New Testament. Matthew 1. First, uh, first book, first chapter, first page of the New Testament. And just hear these words. Okay, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. After so many kings had failed to even reach David's level. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, what does the name Jesus mean? It's the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yehoshua or Yeshua. Joshua is the name. And it's a combination of two words, really. It's the word for salvation in Hebrew. And then it's the tetragrammaton. The four letters, Y-H-W-H, the personal covenant name of God. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Jesus, the son of David and the son of God, was born into our world to save us from our sins. For we could not save ourselves. We never could. Not even David could do it. And it is to him, to Jesus, that we must point. For it is in his name and his name alone that salvation belongs. It's in his blood. It's in his life. His death. Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Have you fallen short? Look to Jesus. We'll close here. You know, it's funny. I was writing the sermon and uh, I went on Twitter because I was distracted. And guess who was trending? Justin Bieber. I didn't even click on it, though. I was like, you know what? It's probably better if I don't know. Not the Justin Bieber from Jacksonville, Florida, mind you. Not the 48-year-old computer software guy or whatever. But the international music superstar. For better or for worse, though, I was thinking as I saw that name trending that they're always going to be linked. That guy's going to go on Twitter and be like, oh, no. What have we gotten ourselves into this time? See, the other Justin Bieber and every other Justin Bieber are going to be affected by whatever scandal the famous one gets into because of the name. So think about it like this. Christian, if you are a Christian here, you are called by his name. You are named after his name. You are associated with the name of Jesus Christ. And praise God, right? On our end, it's all good. 
We are associated with his name. And even though we are sinful because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we can receive his righteousness by faith. We can be justified in his eyes. And because of grace, God can see us as if we were Jesus, as if we had lived his perfect life. That's how we get into heaven, not because we're good. But consider the flip side of this. Christian, if you're a Christian here, you represent Christ. You represent Jesus now in this world. You have taken on his name. And again, this is not how we get into heaven by our works. Thank God for that. But the truth is how we act. It's going to affect the way that people think of Jesus. What kind of associations do people have with the name of Christ because of us? Because of you, because of me. So let this be a reminder and an encouragement as we start to jump off away from David, as we look to the one that David ultimately points to. We are ambassadors for Christ, Second Corinthians 5. So speak like one and act like one and fight like one if you must. Love like one. Be faithful like one. Live like one. And at the end, at the end of the day, may his name be honored as the name above every single name that has ever existed. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we look to you for grace. God, we want to live in a way that pleases you. God, we know that we fall short. So we just ask that you would help us. And God, we're thankful. We're so thankful for someone like David, God, who lived his life under a microscope for all eternity. God, we can see his strengths and his weaknesses. We can see, we can read about his victories and his failings. God, I pray that we would take to heart the lessons that David lived his life to teach us. And God, I pray that we would, in the good ways, follow in his steps as he points us to Christ. We're placing in Christ's name. Amen.